0: My late husband, Edwin, was extremely handy at building, restoring, and fixing things, and he had the seven large tool bags to go along with that. I, on the other hand, am not. Those tasks often require strength, coordination, and know-how, and I'm pretty much 0 for 3 on those. I remember trying to put up the holder for the indoor-outdoor thermometer on the porch. I eventually succeeded in completely stripping the head off the screw so I couldn't turn it anymore, but it was still sticking out too far to be able to slide the sensor down into the holder. So when Edwin was working on a project, I'd be keen to help, but there wasn't a lot I could do. I could hold the flashlight, hand him tools. I do know my Robertson from my Phillips screwdrivers and I could make trips to the hardware store for the extra parts and tools that every project inevitably seemed to require. But in reality, my contribution to the overall effort was pretty minor. Sometimes it seems to me that preaching can be a bit like that. Over time, I'm increasingly seeing preaching as a relatively minor part of the work we are to accomplish as a church community. Don't get me wrong, I love it but I don't have an exaggerated sense of its importance. Those of us who are given the privilege of regularly speaking to a congregation spend hours sifting through texts, honing ideas, and then crafting the words that will carry those ideas to you. But at best, all we ever achieve is filling a couple more bookshelves in the knowledge bank of your memory. In many church settings, the sermon is seen as the big deal, the meat and potatoes part of a Sunday morning. But it really is only a small part of what church is about or what church is for. The project that Jesus is working on isn't a home repair. His project is the work of bringing his radically different kingdom into the present world, and his church, groups of disparate people connected by love and by a common cause, manages to bring the kingdom, not by listening to lots of sermons, not by having their heads filled with clever ideas, but by loving each other. Or at least that's what Jesus seemed to think. He said, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, because you have such love for one another. Jesus seems to think that his kingdom is advanced more by the supportive conversations that happen at Big Table, by the practical assistance that is offered to people dealing with medical issues, by people like Brenda and Charles doing the -the behind-the-scenes work to make the corn roast happen and by the group of retirees who last weekend put sweat equity into making our worship space nicer, that his kingdom is advanced more by those acts of love than by my sermons. And that makes sense because when we respond to Jesus in faith, that faith is not just agreeing to a set of facts. It's not having the right theological truths on the shelf in our brain. It's not having the right verses or the right catechism memorized. No, as Aaron said last week, faith is the hundreds of little decisions to live in the Jesus way day by day by day. Jesus began his ministry with a call to repent. Repent metanoia in the Greek, which means to rethink everything. And that rethinking doesn't involve changing the content of our thinking, replacing a bunch of facts in our brains with new and better facts, although some of that may be needed too. The rethinking that Jesus wants is changing the process of our thinking, abandoning well-worn mental paths that we have. You know, the ones that quickly lead us to judge others, to harbor bitterness, to be stingy, arrogant, and harsh. That's what Jesus wants to change, the way we think, not what we think. And preaching doesn't have a lot of impact on that. Like helping Edwin with his project, I can shine a bit of light and sometimes offer a tool, things that are helpful, but by no means the main part of completing the project. Now, you may say, wait a minute, Jan, if teaching is so minor in its impact, why did Jesus do so much of it? Fair point. But the thing that was unique about Jesus' teaching, in contrast to what goes on in churches on Sunday mornings, is that Jesus lived elbow to elbow with his followers all week. He gave them the words, but then he lived them out in front of them, day by day by day. Since September, we've been talking about the five central teachings of Jesus. But although you may have heard those messages, you didn't get to watch Jesus in the days after his teaching, or even to watch me and Aaron, for that matter. I may have sounded good when I was talking about humility, but you wouldn't see me if I was being arrogant and condescending with the clerk at the grocery store. I talked about non-judgment, but you have no idea about how judgmental or not I am being as I watch my kids navigate adulthood. I may be compelling in my arguments for forgiveness, but you don't know whether I harbor bitter resentment towards someone who hurt me in the past. In contrast, Jesus' disciples saw him in all of his day-to-day interactions. When he was dealing with vendors at the market, when the Pharisee who invited him for lunch didn't provide a servant to wash his feet, when he was misunderstood, rejected, lonely, hungry, and tired. He taught beautiful ideas, and then he lived out those beautiful ideas in front of them. When we talk about raising young kids, you've probably heard the notion that values are more easily caught then taught. And sadly, sometimes our kids catch the bad values that we are living rather than the good ones we think we are teaching. Jesus' disciples got to not only hear his teachings, they got to catch the example of him living out the values he espoused. Let's take a look at his example. The first of Jesus' recurrent teachings that we talked about was humility. And as I pointed out back then, perhaps the greatest example of Jesus' humility was his willingness to leave the heavenly realm and take on flesh, going from divine monarch to human servant. It's a great example, but perhaps a little hard to relate to. We can watch episodes of Undercover Boss, but even that shift from CEO to frontline worker doesn't begin to capture the loss of status that Jesus willingly endured. So it's it's impressive and worthy of our gratitude and our worship, but it isn't fully relatable. Where else did he show humility? Well, for more than a decade, he labored in obscurity. He presumably knew what lay ahead for him, but he didn't brag about it or lord it over others. He wasn't like Joseph in the book of Genesis, who drives his brothers nuts by boasting about his favored status and his future fame. Jesus was just a humble carpenter. And when he begins his public ministry, he is constantly trying to temper his fame, telling those he has healed to tell no one about it. He doesn't enhance his status by hanging out with the powerful and influential, the movers and shakers. He hangs out with the marginalized and the losers. He lived out his humility every day. In terms of non-attachment, it's not clear that Jesus owned much of anything. When a would-be follower invites himself over to Jesus' house, Jesus replies, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. Unlike some contemporary preachers, he doesn't solicit donations. He leaves the group's communal funds in the care of a known thief. And it seems generally what the money is used for is to help the poor. Jesus teaches the dangers of being too attached to to material belongings, and then he sets the example of a simple lifestyle. Jesus taught non-judgment and repeatedly demonstrated it in his dealings with the individuals he interacted with. Think of the rich young ruler Jesus knows this young man's heart, how deeply attached he is to his many possessions. We're told, after all, that he had great stuff. And Jesus knew how the man's identity was wrapped up in that wealth. But Jesus doesn't write him off as a mercenary tycoon, nor does he jump all over him for his conspicuous consumerism he gently leads him to a place where he he has the opportunity to rethink his relationship with his stuff. He could have judged Nicodemus, a leading Pharisee, for being so fearful of other people's opinions that he came to see Jesus by the dark of night, but he doesn't. He could have judged the woman at the well for her illicit living situation, but he doesn't. He could have judged the sinful woman who was anointing his feet when he was at a formal dinner with religious people. My, my skin crawls at how incredibly awkward that whole thing must have been. But Jesus didn't shoo her away. He could have judged his disciples for lots of things. James and John for their relentless jockeying for position, Judas for pilfering communal funds, Peter for his seeming foot-in-mouth disease, but he didn't. With his divine attributes of perfect insight and perfect judgment, he could have judged, but he didn't. What about forgiveness? Jesus not only taught about the importance of forgiveness, he forgave people. Surely one of the most poignant examples during his ministry is that of the woman caught in adultery crowd is ready to stone her and they challenge Jesus to endorse their plan based on the law of Moses. Jesus invites anyone who is without sin to cast the first stone. Starting with the oldest, the accusers all skulk away and Jesus assures the woman that he does not condemn her. She finds freedom in his forgiveness. Finally, Jesus taught and lived a life of nonviolence. This may have been his most countercultural message because the unquestioned assumption of first century Jews was that Messiah would lead an armed rebellion to oust the Romans and reestablish the Davidic monarchy. Yet Jesus consistently taught love of enemy and told his disciples that to follow him, they would need to take up the cross, the instrument of their own death, not to take up the sword that they wanted to use to attack the Romans. And Jesus modeled that non-violent approach in the way he responded to those who sought to attack him. We have some pretty lively discussions here at Q&R after the sermon, but nothing like what Jesus faced when he offered unwelcome messages. On one occasion, his hearers tried to throw him off a cliff, and on another, they wanted to stone him. But Jesus didn't take up arms against them and fight back. He didn't smite them with some miraculous attack or supernatural weapon. He simply slipped away. While Jesus modeled these five virtues throughout his life, it was perhaps in his last days and death that he most clearly demonstrated them. In great humility, he washed his disciples' feet. Without any judgment, he apparently washed Judas' feet just as tenderly as the others'. He refused violence to the point that he preferred to die than to fight telling Peter that the time for swords was over, refusing to enlist an army of angels to protect himself. He graciously offered forgiveness to the very tormentors who were crucifying him. And in the ultimate act of non-attachment, he gave up his life for us. These were the virtues that shaped how Jesus thought and acted not the doctrines that shaped what he thought. And he lived these virtues well. But that doesn't mean it was easy for him. In the wilderness temptation, the Satan specifically attacked his humility, urging him to establish his fame his fame and following by throwing himself off the temple and being rescued by angels. And while he showed non-attachment by giving up his life on the cross, he did that at the cost of great agony, sweating drops of blood as he prayed about it in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Aaron described back in September when he launched this series, the ideas behind it are borrowed from a book by Patrick Amer an American lawyer who took on the project of trying to identify Jesus' most central teachings, the virtues that needed to be displayed in the lives of his followers in order for his kingdom to take root and flourish. I have to admit that when Aaron first told me about the author's basic premise, my immediate reaction was, that can't be right. I have admitted to you my tendency to be judgmental. I thought it couldn't be right because Jesus clearly thought that to love God and love neighbor were the most important commands, and love didn't even appear on the list. But in another sense, love is everywhere on the list. The two great commandments can feel a bit abstract. What does it actually mean to love God? And what is the relationship between loving my neighbor and loving myself? In the face of that vagueness, these five virtues make the sweeping demand of the love commands more granular and more tangible. If we truly love our neighbor, we won't want to be violent toward him in our actions or even in our words. If we love our neighbor, we won't judge them. We'll give them the benefit of assuming they are doing the best they can. And when they do something objectively harmful to us, we will forgive them. If we really love them, we'll love them more than our stuff, so we will freely share with them. And finally, if we really love them, we will exhibit a humility that creates space for them and honors them above ourselves. And these five virtues are also related to the other great command to love God, because it is out of the context of a loving relationship with God that we are able to express them. When we experience the deep, unconditional love that God has for us, we can be humble instead of constantly striving to bolster our egos. When we have come to trust God's provision, we won't hoard our possessions when we have confidence that God is the one who has forgiven us and who will set all things right, we can set set aside our desire to judge and can offer forgiveness. And as we grow deep with God, we will start to bear the family resemblance, being peacemakers rather than people who try to resolve conflicts with violence. Jesus taught by what he said, and by how he lived. He calls us to not only hear what he says, but to do it. Here is how he closed his famous Sermon on the Mount. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life